Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to Dove and Dragon Radio. I'm your host, Emma Ruschak. I'm here with special guest and award-winning author, Dean Rupert. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Now, you have done a lot of things in your career. One of them is to write for, right after the horrific events of 9-11 in a area that didn't have a newsroom at the time. Well, I was a reporter and columnist for the Wall Street Journal for any number of years. On 9-11, actually, I, was, I had already left to start my own entrepreneurial um, news organization. I know you like entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. and um, I left. And so while I was in New York on September 8th, 2001, actually filming and interviewing journalists who were involved on 9-11. I actually wasn't there myself on 9-11 and I'd already left the Wall Street Journal. But you still got the right September 12th. Well, yes, and even that um, was kind of a surprise to me. I um, set out in June, July of 2020 on a two or three year project to write a biography of the longest serving managing editor of the Wall Street Journal, a gentleman named Paul Steiger. Paul Steiger led the paper for 16 years, including on 9-11, and then went on to start a second news organization and career, ProPublica, which has become a very influential nonprofit news organization. So I set out to write the biography of him. I thought it would be a two plus year project. And I thought one of the early chapters that I could dispense with was what he did on September 11, because I knew he was a managing editor. And so I started to look into that and I started to research that. And ultimately I came across really a treasure trove of material that had never been seen publicly, never published. Largely what it was, was real-time emails and memoranda sent by reporters and editors on that day, trying to locate one another, trying to figure out what to do, how to get the paper out. And nobody had seen that before. And when I continued to dig, I ultimately realized that this would not be a chapter in a biography of a single individual, that this was worthy of its own treatment. And so that is really, I really began working on September 12th, the book in December of 2020. And it took me about eight months dedicated just working on that. Even though there was a wealth of material, um, it had to be understood, processed, fact-checked, all of those things. Right. It's, we're looking at the day the world changed. 
absolutely it really is in modern time it's the day the world changed everything from how we get our news to how we connect with one another to everything that's leading up to today is contributed to 20 years ago absolutely it's very much a precursor to for example it is a um excellent tune-up for what happened to news organizations when COVID-19 hit up until September of 2001, no major national news organization had ever had to operate entirely remotely. That happened to the Wall Street Journal because it lost its headquarters, it lost its main newsroom. So everything had to happen 20 years ago remotely. Well, when COVID came along, February, March, and news organizations began closing their main newsrooms, there was already experience of that. They already knew how. Plus, the technology had advanced. The technology of 2020, 2021 is so far advanced over what it had been in 2001 that that clearly made it much easier. But now the idea of a virtual news organization, a major virtual news organization, is really quite commonplace. It in, is. In 2001, nobody had ever tried it. No, we, being a product of that generation, we have, we grew up with learning the technology. Now we haven't, and so advanced to what we had 20 years ago. Kids today don't understand this never happened. We didn't have the Zoom conferences. We didn't have the Skypes where we could do it like we are now. It was okay, but we still have dial-up connection in 2020 or 2001. 2001, absolutely. There were no smartphones didn't exist. The um, news organizations were highly reliant on fax machines mm -hmm. to transmit stories and memos. And on 9-11, phone lines didn't work. So fax machines didn't work. Mm -hmm. The uh, most Americans were still on America Online. They had dial-up connections. They didn't have, most Americans didn't even have DSL, much less high-speed internet connections. So right. really, the, yeah, so the paper having to work under those conditions, um, it's hard now with the book hopefully helps, but it's, it's hard to understand. understand. Yeah. I mean, books like yours helps the generation today see what happened 20 years ago, not just in news, but where our technology came from. Yeah, there are a lot of interesting anecdotes in the, in the book. I was watching, um, I like the old... 1950s series Perry Mason mm -hmm. and so I was watching some shows again recently and one of the things I commented on was what's neat about it is you see what Los Angeles looked like in the 1950s because there are a lot of exterior scenes in it well in some ways especially for uh, readers who were too young to remember 2001 and there are a lot of them mm -hmm. um, this book does the same thing. It is a time machine. It takes people back and reminds them just 20 years ago, just a score of years ago, how different our world was and how different our technology was. It is because we take our smartphones for granted now. No one had those 20 years ago. If you had a flip phone with a camera, you're in the digital age. They, did, they didn't have a flip phone. Flip phones didn't have cameras in 2001. Yes, they right. really, they, that, that's why you can actually look, and believe me, 
I did to try to find um, more photos, more original photos from 9-11. For the most part, they don't exist. They're, one of the anecdotes I tell in the book is of a journal reporter who wanted to photographically record what was going on. He had to go use a cam, you know, he had to use a standalone digital camera. So they had digital cameras, but not built into phones. Um, another journalist went to a drugstore and bought the disposable type of Kodak or Fuji, you know, mm -hmm. 36 shots on a phone, but, but people didn't have cameras on their phones. Yeah, that's right. See, I forget where the technology started. I mean, it's so easy when you live with it every day to forget 20 years ago what I had and what I didn't have. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's, and it's not just that, it's, there was a different innocence at that point. Remember, 9-11 changed all of our innocence. Um, we, nobody, thought that, nobody thought that America could suffer the kind of loss we suffered on 9-11 on our domestic territory. People knew from parents or grandparents what happened at Pearl Harbor. But even Pearl Harbor was not in the heart of New York City. I mean, it was, it was off the coast of Hawaii. It wasn't, it wasn't something that most people knew. Here, most, many, many people knew it. Many people had visited the World Trade Center as tourists, you know, when they would, or they would come to New York on business. They could personally relate to this. And this really robbed the country and in some ways the world of our sense of innocence. And we've, we'll never go back, no. you know, no. How many people had relatives there? How many people have visited there? How many people wanted to be there because it was just New York? You have to visit New York. So everyone knew New York. That was a heart of our country. And for us to come back from that. You know, there are two points I would really like to make um, about the book. One is that it is really not despite everything, it's really not a story about 9-11. No, it's not. It, it's a comeback story. It's a story about the resilience of a group of men and women who were not war correspondents. They were, they were covering finance and economics and Wall Street. And overnight, they became, um, they became war correspondents and had to do all of that. But, but it, people think about 9-11 and they think sad and nothing changes the sadness no it doesn't but well, the book i just want to say but the book is intended to be uplifting not mm -hmm. down right. it's not a downer it's it's uplifting it basically tells story after story of people who were resilient they were defiant they weren't going to let the terrorists defeat them and they did come back and it's mm -hmm. a lesson for us for every dark cloud that we enter. Let's take COVID-19. I mean, COVID-19 has killed far more people than 9-11 did. It's a very dark cloud. But the message of the book is that people are resilient. They will, we will come back from all of that. We will. It doesn't matter what happens in our lives. We will come back from it. And if you let it break you, it breaks you. If you come back resilient and say, no, this is not going to break me. This is what we need to thrive. We need to advance our technology. We have to advance how we do things. We have to rotate our thinking into something different. 
And there are lessons. The second point I was going to make is that while the book reflects on what happened 20 years ago, um, it's also in some ways a guide to the future. And there are lessons that everybody can learn, especially entrepreneurs and business owners and whatnot, as to how to prepare for the next crisis, because invariably there will be a next crisis. This time it hit the Wall Street Journal. Who knows where it will hit next time. But sort of hidden in plain sight in this book are some very keen management lessons as to how the journal managed against truly impossible odds to put out that paper. And one of the chapters in the book is titled 9-11 didn't happen in a day. And the message there is that the time to prepare for this type of crisis is long before the crisis hits. And the Wall Street Journal never imagined this type of crisis. And yet, really starting in the early 1940s, began implementing management directives that guided the staff in 2001 so that they knew what to do, even though they couldn't communicate with their editors or their colleagues, they still had a sense of what they had to do under those circumstances. Right, and we see this in any business that's functioning properly. There's directives for almost every problem, almost, not every problem, but almost. Yeah. And you can take some of those lessons that you have for your daily problems and implement it into an emergency situation. Absolutely, absolutely. And so there were, there were many instances of that. Um, there are a lot of touching instances in the book and also some that raise interesting sort of ethical, philosophical questions. One of them, for example, was, so in the very first chapter of the book, I zero in on a reporter at the Wall Street Journal named John Hilsenrath. And John was there in 2001 and he is still there much more senior today, but still there today. And he was not in any way a breaking news, let's go cover this crisis type of reporter. His beat was economics and particularly academic economics, but he had a reporter's instinct. And on 9-11, he was in the Wall Street Journal building. He could look out the windows and see what was happening at, at the World Trade Centers because the Wall Street Journal headquarters were located just across the street from the World Trade Center. And so he went down to the street and instinctively began reporting. He began interviewing people. And while phones were still working, he called his wife, Christina, who was also a journalist, but not working that day in Long Island. She begged him not to keep reporting. She feared, and she ultimately was right, that the two towers would collapse. She just was watching it on TV and thought, they can't withstand this. She begged him to come home. She said, we've got two young children. You're a father. You have a responsibility to come home. Well, that's an interesting ethical dilemma. Here he was on the scene, a journalist. How, you know, right outside their front door was the largest, biggest story probably in ever in any of these people's careers. So he had, on one hand, that was a responsibility. He had a responsibility to readers, to editors. And on the other hand, here's his wife on the phone begging him not to put himself at risk, further risk, and to come home. 
So I won't tell you how they resolved it, but what I tell you is there are, are a lot of human stories in this book, stories of people who had to make difficult decisions on a very difficult traumatic day. Right. These are stories that are uplifting because we did come back from those. Yep. These are stories that people have not heard because we always go to the stories of the negativity instead right. of the hope. And we have to have the stories of hope to understand the negativity, how to get past the negativity. I'd like to share with you another anecdote from the book, if I may. Please. The, okay. So um, two journal reporters, two women who shared an apartment that also was just across the street from the World Trade Center in something called Gateway Towers. Um, their apartment was also largely obliterated on 9-11. Um, they left and they left without their pet cat, Stoli was the name of the cat, 13 years old, because they evacuated and mm -hmm. they didn't realize they wouldn't really be able to come back. Um, and they also had a friend, another journalist, um, who had two cats in the same complex and left. And so they abandoned, you know, they, they didn't have a choice. Now on September 12th, they wanted to go back and see what happened if their cat had survived. And if so, to rescue their cat. And they're savvy journalists. They understand these things. Well, they, they didn't have, they had to put on different clothes when they, their, they couldn't take the clothes they had at their apartment. So they ended up at a friend's house she gave them both large white shirts from her husband. So they looked almost like gowns. Mm -hmm. They stopped at a hardware store. They picked up dust masks because they knew it would be dusty. They couldn't get past police lines with their press credentials. The um, police were not letting media pass the lines. But some of the journalists who were on the scene came up to them thinking they were medical people because they had these large white shirts on and they had these masks and wanted to interview them. And so they realized that maybe they could use that, that misdirection, if you will, mm -hmm. to get them access. And sure enough, they were able to walk past police barriers, impersonating, if you will, medical personnel. They were journalists. And they ultimately got to the apartment. They were on the 10th floor. They used candles because there was no power in a 10th story plus building. They walked up the stairwell. They Open, all the doors had been blown open or busted down of all of the apartments, I, presumably either from the blast or from firefighters trying to check to make sure um, people got nobody out. Was behind. They get to their apartment, the doors open, they presume the worst, they go inside and their cat is there meowing as if to say, where have you been? And so they, <laughs> rescue, they rescued their cat. But all of that shows a kind of initiative and pluck and we're not going to be defeated and we're not afraid we're going to show courage that resonates throughout the book right we find our inner strength once you find your inner strength we move forward and that's what the story is it's moving forward it's finding hope it's finding you know to go forward we have to absolutely absolutely so i mean if if the events of 20 years ago didn't happen, would we have the technology we have today? Would we have been prepared for the technological crisis of COVID? Would we be able to cope with it like we are today? Very few 
of the editors or reporters who were at the journal 20 years ago um, are still there. Most of them have left. And there, there's a number of reasons for that, including the fact that the um, paper, which was owned by Dow Jones, Dow Jones was bought by Rupert Murdoch and News Corp in 2007. And that change of management and ownership encouraged many journalists to leave. But um, they left and they became top editors at the New York Times, at Reuters, at Bloomberg, at Fortune, et cetera, et cetera, and they, at the Washington Post. And they brought with them, when they left, the experience they had at the Wall Street Journal on 9-11. So that experience radiated out to other news organizations and certainly helped, was not the only ingredient, but certainly helped when again, they had to evacuate their newsrooms for a long period of time once again in 2020 for COVID. Now with a much greater resource of technology with Zoom, with conference calling, with um, smartphones that had cameras and internet access, all of those things that they didn't have in 2001. But really the journal seeded a lot of other news organizations with top managers and help them, they benefited from the journal's experience. How many times do we hear that in a sentence that one news journal seated so many other news journals? Regardless of what, the, what it is, they seated managers in those other places. You I don't have been hear that. No, no, I've been covering journalists and journalism for three decades now. Um, it really almost full time for three decades. And I'm not aware of another news organization other than the Wall Street Journal that has transplanted so many senior editors to different news organizations. Yeah. I didn't mention USA Today, Joanne Lippman, one of the journalists I feature um, in September 12th, went on to become the editor in chief of USA Today. Ed Felsenthal, a journal alum, went on to become and is still the top editor at Time Magazine. I mean, they really, really radiated uh, out to all sorts of news organizations. We can actually say thank you to the Wall Street Journal for having so many wonderful editors and chiefs, managers, reporters, and so many other news organizations today. They've done a, they've done a good job. Uh, and the other thing that's interesting is, and I've written about this outside of the book, not just, mm -hmm. I didn't really write about it in the book, to be honest with you, but um, these people also forged an incredible bond. Uh, having worked on 9-11, and then in the days and weeks after to get out the paper under incredibly difficult circumstances, all these people became really close friends, um, more so than they had been, even if they had worked together in the same newsroom for years where they, it was just normal work. They became bonded. They had a shared experience. They knew things and they felt things that nobody else could relate to. And even 20 years later, um, nothing has broken that bond. So they're now dispersed. Some of them are retired. Um, they're at different news organizations. As I said, very few are still at the Wall Street Journal, but uh, they're still very close, closer, I think, than almost any other group of journalists who had worked together in a newsroom for a period of time and then dispersed. 
I mean, you could almost bet that they know when each other's birthdays are, when the holidays are, uh, regardless of what religion they are, but they know, hey, this, this holiday is coming up. I need to contact who? This one has a birthday coming in. This one has a kid graduating from high school or college, or, you know, you can almost bet they have these relationships. I want to do, take a minute with you and do a little bit of show and tell. First sure. of all, this is, so this is, I can't see myself. Yeah, this is the addition, the actual addition of the paper mm -hmm. um, from uh, September 12th. Um, and it did, it, the headline is, terrorists destroy World Trade Center, hit Pentagon and raid with hijacked jets. Uh, and again, this edition, a single edition, went on to win the Pulitzer Prize um, for breaking news. Let's see if I can show you. And then something else I want to show you that I personally found um, inspiring or interesting in the book. Please do. Well, a couple of things, but hang on. I got to find this page here. Where is it? Yeah, it's past there. And it's before here. We're almost there. I know where it is. Take your so, time, please. You have to be a journalist to find things in your own book sometimes. Well, I, I just, I didn't prepare this. I'm just doing it ad hoc. Well, this was what we do though. We don't prepare. We like things organic. Yeah, so the, um, what does this say? Yeah. So I have a picture in here. Let's see if I can get, it. so do you see this photo? Yes. Yeah, I don't I know how easy. Quite well, it's quite clear. Two young, two young men, actually what's behind them is the World Trade Center. Yes. So I talk about the gentleman in the middle is a journalist. His name is Roy Harris. And these are his two sons, uh, Dave and RJ. And um, I, it's not important for what I want to, the point I want to make as to why I'm writing about Roy Harris in the book and his sons. But what is interesting, I write about a number of children of the journalists in the book. And um, the sort of shocking thing is, I guess if you know kids, it hits you as well, that all these kids are now 20 years older. Mm -hmm. And so I'm writing about, you know, teenagers in the book and how they responded. Um, one of the young people in the book who I write about, her name is Rebecca Disler. She celebrated her birthday on September 12th. And her mom was shopping for her in the World Trade Center on September 11th and got out okay. But she was celebrating her, she was gonna celebrate her 11th birthday on September 12th. Well, that young girl is now 31 years old. And to me, that was one of the more sort of step back from the book and say, wow, tw things do change in 20 years. I mean, he, all, everybody who was a kid, even if they were an infant, I, I talk about a, I talk about a, a young girl, uh, Annie is her name, who's like one and a half years old and is watching Sesame Street on the morning of September 11th. Her mom is a editor, gets the call, says you really ought to be watching TV and has to bounce Sesame Street off the air so she can watch the news. Well, that little girl, Annie, is now 21 years old. I mean, it's we don't realize how time passes. And one of the things that this book uh, showcases is kids grow up, you know, and they grow up many, we have a whole generation now of kids who do remember 
that even the, if they were five, if they were six, if they were eight, they do remember 9-11 and it has helped shape their lives and how they conduct themselves. It has, really, it has. To be a teenager then, to be where I'm at now, it has shaped my life. And right. I wasn't in New York, but right. I have family there. Yeah, well, it's so, so um, I, there's a lot, go ahead. There's a lot there that even if you're far away from the actual what happened, it still shapes your life. We remember, but we have became better because of it. I agree. So, and uh, in the book, now I won't be able to find this very easily either, but let's see, try one more time. Um, in, in the book, I have, I have a photo of my own two children um, here. This will not be that easy to see on here, but there they are. And can you see anything there? I can't tell. I see you. I see them. Yeah. Well, so again, the little girl there is now 24 and mm -hmm. the little boy is 29, but they're standing on top of the World Trade Center. They, we took them up to, you know, you could go to a uh, tourism viewing area uh, outside on top of the World Trade Center. And so again, they I don't didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was windy, very breezy, but you could see, I think they said 50 miles, 360 degrees, you could see from the top of the World Trade Center. It was, you know, they had, um, you would go in and take special elevators up um, to the top. Then you had to climb some more stairs, but you could do that. I used to have, for the Wall Street Journal, I used to have at least once a week, um, a breakfast meeting at the Windows on the World restaurant which was on the 106th floor of one of the two towers. Um, and also, I mean, the, the real cachet of it was that you could look out uh, and see all of Manhattan. You could look into New Jersey uh, from the Windows on the World restaurant. And I can still, if I could draw it, absolutely map out from my mind's memory, uh, walking through, you know, what you saw walking through the World Trade Center, the hotel that was connected, I stayed at on multiple occasions, the Marriott World Trade Center, which was technically World Trade Center building number seven. Um, I mean, all these things are kind of seared into my memory. Well, at least we have the window to the past wrote within your book. Yes, yes. I said it's a little bit of time travel if you... Um, you, you can go, go forward or backwards. Correct. A absolutely. But we are almost out of time. So where can our listeners and our viewers find your book? And you. Thank you. Um, the easiest way is from Amazon.com. It's up and available now. On the other hand, I'm offering for no additional fee, if you want to buy it directly, um, to sign copies for people. And there's no, if you're in the United States, there's no sales tax or uh, shipping fee. It's included in the cover price, the same price that Amazon charges. Uh, I'll, I'll fill out a, I'll sign the book for anybody who wants it. There's a special URL for that. It's gutenbergsstore.com and I'll spell it. It's G-U-T-1-T, G-U-T-E-N-B-E-R-S store.com. So it's one T, 
two S's, gutenbergstore.com. And anybody who purchases a copy of the book there will get a signed copy. Again, no additional cost. Well, thank you so much for that. And it was a pleasure and a real honor to have you on the show today. Well, it was my pleasure and I thank you for inviting me. Thank you so much. And for our listeners and our viewers, happy reading. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.